Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke to writer, director and producer Lena Dunham. Thanks for all... It's a bloody good podcast, by the way, with Lena Dunham. You're going to love it. She's amazing. She's what you'd think she would be. She's lucid, she's bright, funny, open, charming, um, insightful, brilliant vocabulary, quick. Did the thing one point, which I will not forget for a while, is it was a bit where I was telling the story... And I needed to remember the word seed, as in uh, yield, you know, but I didn't remember it and I went for surrender. In her next bit of talking, she used the word seed as if, like, there's that word you needed. Like, oh, there it was. It was in the next sentence. Uh, Anyway, what about your comments on last week's wonderful podcast with Byron Katie? Here are those comments now. Someone said that they, they are scoops and this is what they say. Uh, I know we're all human and idolatry is not good and meant to be frowning upon seeking out external validation, etc, etc. But fucking hell, Byron Katie said she loves RB's mind. That's practically canonisation. Hashtag made it. Hashtag under the skin. Thanks, Soups, for saying that because I've always wanted to be canonised and wondered when it might happen and it's now... Dodger001, this was literally breathtaking. I've never felt compelled to write so many notes. Thank you for so much learning. It was the best, and I didn't think you could top Karamo last week. Well, hopefully we will continue to top these experiences, uh, Dodger001, until you eventually become like a pure orb of light or a mist or something. KJ Kensho Flow, just listened and loved hearing you do the work at the end. Thank you for being willing to share your own work and inspiring me to do my own. Me doing Byron Katie's work is one of the most liberating moments of my day. Well, you do it every day. You do it as a daily practice because I do my 12-step stuff, of course. Generem Photo. Dream Team. Byron changed my life. People love Byron Katie. And I loved her as well. She was so brilliant and bright and clear. I really... Uh, and strong. Like a strong, nice, uh, benevolent white witch that you might meet in a wood. So that's a good thing to say, isn't it? Lynette, boom. This was awe-inspiring. Listened a few times to soak up the gold nuggets. You dirty devil. And then I believe there's a, an emoji of a hexagram that you get in uh, the I Ching. And it's one I've had before. And, uh, and it's, it plays on my mind a lot. I think about this hexagram. The I Ching, you know, fortune-telling system that... Jung was well into, like as if random chance can be read, that there is data and information in the chance, in the chaos upon which order rests. All right, enough of all that. Self-promotion. No, actually, a bit more self-promotion. We are on the new podcast app, Luminary. Sign up at luminary.link forward slash Russell to get three months of free. Three months for free. Deal with the problem in the future, like a high-purchase car, isn't it? Oh, brilliant. Who's to say there's ever going to be some guys at the door because you didn't pay for that thing? This is three months free. Under the Skin will only be available on Luminary from 24 May. So that's like there's three or four more. So you best get on there and do this sign-up. Lena's new podcast, The C Word, which sounds amazing, actually, will also be on Luminary. Her podcast, which she has with her mate, whose name I should definitely be saying now, she, they do a podcast about the, the C word is women who have been condemned as crazy over the years and uh, like telling different stories about them, deeper stories, more complex stories. People are angry in this room because I'm trying to adjust my own mic, but I will not be infantilized by the team. Also, remember to 
go uh, my YouTube channel to get little spiritual videos. You know I do those little spiritual videos? You can follow me at Rusty Rockets or at True Russell Brand on Instagram. Or you can go on Facebook and watch my little spiritual videos. Or you can go on YouTube and watch my little spiritual videos where I give you advice. Can you imagine? Well, you don't need to. Go and get it off of those things. Also, Mentors is available as an audio book. Uh, on Kindle or on hardback in the US and in Canada. And if you're not seeing Rebirth on Netflix, have a look at that when you're watching Brene Brown, for God's sake. Have a look at Brene Brown, bloody good. Then have a look at old Russ, and we're going to get Brene Brown on here. Don't you worry about that. Also, come and see me on Saturday the 18th of May at Wanderlust here in Hollywood. You'll enjoy it. It's basically me doing them little spiritual videos, but for ages right in your face can you imagine that now i'm talking about the 12 steps which is a sort of a system of awakening that transforms consciousness what do you want for 20 dollars is it 20 dollars yeah well there you go 20 dollars yeah come okay should we, should we do lena dunham now that's really like this was a wonderful conversation with a brilliant person who i admire who spoke um very eloquently and honestly, I really, I knew I would enjoy meeting her, but I enjoyed it even more than thought. She's really funny and brilliant. I hope you enjoy it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Lena, thanks for coming on this podcast. It's and such an honor. I really love your work and what you do in so many ways, and I've been very excited to come. Thank you. It's really, really lovely of you. Um, what was I thinking about just now? Oh, yeah, this is it. I read something. It was yesterday in uh, dealing with relationships between men and women, of us learning to acknowledge the divine within one another. I suppose that can have uh, a secular connotation whenever you're talking about anything that's got a religious underpinning and that is my general perspective even though I don't know for a fact and I know like you know quite a lot of things that I've read about you I feel that you are generally your perspective is sort of humanist and uh, secularist you're I would say that's accurate like I have um uh I have a sense of like I have a god of my own understanding if you will I have like a, a an inner spiritual life, but I would say that like that's really rooted in relationships to people, and like I find, I definitely find any form of like divinity in my relationships with other people, and maybe sometimes dogs. Yeah, that's a good place to find it totemistically with dogs. Dogs help. So, like my a friend of mine was like, tell I was having a hard time, and she was like, "Can you look for the God and where's God in this experience?" And I was like. Well, probably my dog like that that would be and she was like okay roll with that a couple of relationships that when they broke up i felt like i was doing okay but perhaps in retrospect i wasn't doing as well as i thought i was because the thing i attached to was shared pets in the relationship I oh yeah that's a big i had a lot of rage that i had to work through about my ex which you know he's a good person people know who he is he's a good person but the idea that he could not want to see our dogs more, like that he, I was like, what kind of person could walk away from these poodles and not tr- fight harder? Like, and that, and I had to realize, like my two things I got focused on were money I felt, bills I felt he should have split, that in hindsight mm. had nothing to do with him. And Those bills. And also, 
who <laughs> for those of you who can't see russell just made a big note that said bills underlined so i had to let go of a few bills actually and it's a really rough one in defense of your ex that was able to walk away from those poodles like like i had to like i in a relationship i left um or the relationship that ended I'm not trying to get yeah. sort of subtly you're not trying to subtly say you were the boss i'm the chieftain of that right <laughs> i decide when this relationship ends this is when i snap my fingers yeah. doll. like um i remember like this somehow the letting go of that dog was so painful that i i've i almost have had to seal the vault of that emotion permanently i've never even if i if a photograph of that dog comes up on my phone like i still i feel a sort of a jolt yeah of course of course it's like it's really hurts and it creates and it's a sinkhole that can't be filled and so if you you don't just want to have like casual access to the dog the dog's either yours or the dog's not yours otherwise i suppose that casual access is like you're forever picking away at that at that wound i suppose in their wordlessness animals can become a depository for something very very sacred and pure oh yeah i mean my dog trainer gave me a big lecture because i have a number of dogs but my dog my most recent acquisition is this rescue dog she's really like i know everyone thinks their dog special but she's like hairless she's half mexican hairless half pug so she's like hairless but with like a smushed face and really just like stops traffic wherever she goes and as a result of her cuteness I was really not focusing on how badly I was training her and the trainer who came really like was like you gave me a very stern talking to about not treating my dog he's like this dog's not here to serve you you're here to serve this dog he's like so this dog is not your stuffed animal this dog is not your child this and I was like like my assistant who's like cool and young and uses like cool RuPaul saying was like, he just read you for filth. Like he just saw you and was just like, no, I'm not having it. Have you heard the term read me for no, filth? Look at for filth. I'll check. Yeah. yeah. Like That's if someone told you really who you were day. in a not nice way, they read you for filth. And uh, that's what that dog trainer was mm-hmm. able to do. You Brian Kilcomans read me for filth. So and I have, by the way, like, I'm still working with him and I'm not going to stop. Like, I liked it. It just took a second. It hurt. I got told by a dog trainer, in, in retrospect, it's looking like I may have been read for filth <laughs> yeah. by this dog trainer. They said, like, in fact, all of the dog trainers that I've met have ad- admonished me in various ways because the dog that I got once, like, I entered into domesticity, my wife and I, our daughters, Brian um bear the dog that's yeah. like a the foundational creature the totemic animal of yeah. our family who was in a sense an evolution of Brian the dog that was uh, like I lost to a previous relationship Brian Brian yeah yeah, yeah I can barely say his name like um he uh, like bear is such a tornado of energy yeah. and madness and complication this dog was meant to represent my transition and indeed, it was a transition into a different type of man, into a different type of life. I, I can't be that person anymore. I can't live with the chaos. And somehow the chaos found its way into that dog. So yep. I've been through quite a lot of trainers. And those trainers have said things like, I guess we do. Inf- we probably enforce their negative behaviors with the way that we treat them. Yeah. We evidently project quite a lot onto them. 
Well, they said to me, the dog trainer said to me when I was saying that I let her sleep in my bed every night. And then he was like, do you feed her from the table? And I was like, well, not like foods that are bad for her. But like if it's something that she would enjoy, such as a sweet potato or watermelon, of course I do. (laughs) And he was like, and he was like, if there was a guy and every time he was upset, he was allowed to sleep in his mom's bed till he was like 30. And also every time he walked into a restaurant, if he thought the food looked good, he just like picked it off off people's plates. And also if he didn't get what he wanted... He cried and then people were like, we're sorry. Would you want to date that person? And I was like, I think I did date that person, <laughs> but also no. And he really like, I was, I felt it and I was like, of course. And like the th- other thing is like people like boundaries. Like something we learn in life is that like setting up boundaries with people feels really scary. And then your life gets so much more manageable when you do. And dogs like boundaries too. That that's hard to remember. And it's hard to remember with people too. Even you have to learn it over and over and over again. My assumption when I hear that, Lena, is that when I think about my own early relationship with authority, education systems, authority more broadly, is that I had negative relationships with it. Now, um, and my dad always would say, you have an authority problem. Yeah. He'd say, and sometimes he'd say it admiringly, and sometimes it was like, this is not great. How did it manifest? I was really like, I wouldn't say it was like, um, like, uh, like a bad kid in school. I didn't like knock over desks and cause problems, but I was sort of strident and uh, ego driven. And I didn't like to engage in group projects. I felt like I could make my own curriculum. Like I felt like I was moving with some sense that like I was a person who should be allowed to do school my own way. And when people tried to interfere with like my own vision of educating myself. I like responded extremely negatively to it. And I really didn't like feeling there were any strictures on my behavior, which looking back is insane. Like I was like, oh, I'm fine with anything as long as no one ever tells me what to do ever. And I'm never, ever told no. Yeah. Is that, and, is that too much to ask? Is it too much to ask that I just move? I'm not that destructive. Like I should just be allowed to move through the world in exactly the way that feels right to me. And like, I was sort of like that in my twenties. I was like, why can't I sleep from 4 a.m. to 2 p.m.? It's fun. Like, I just ate my dessert first. Like, who's looking? And then you start to realize that, like, the person that you're really punishing is, guess who you're punishing? I like this because there's life lessons. Now, like, um, <laughs> but, like, in your 20s or even younger, when you're uh, uh, sort of self-actualizing, when you're realizing yeah. yourself, like, when you tell, tell them stories about, oh, like, that you were resistant to sort of structural authority in school yeah. and you want, you know, that very much sounds like a person who, as it turns out, will go on to be the creator of their own career path, writing and directing and producing their own show. So, like, you know, this, um, in, in, in your case, it's turned out to be incredibly positive impulse. It turned out to mostly be okay, but then I'm sure... You might know what this feels like. It's like there's ways in which it manifests really, really positively. And then there's also ways in which you continue to not understand that like raging against the boundaries that are given to you isn't actually like that cool. It just means that you're exerting a ton of energy raging. I do know what you mean by that. I feel like I defaulted to a kind of mistrust of all authority systems, whether they're familial, educational, social, judicial, I just like, I don't trust that. This is bullshit. Like sort of like a kind of a punk, anarchist, a- a- angry attitude towards the world, which was I saw being verified throughout. The, like then, and you got really positive responses to that persona. Like I remember when I first. It's really interesting. Like something I find so impressive about your career is that you've been able to be so public about your own 
internal transformation while still there being a clear through line. You weren't like, I went to jail and now I'm Christian. Like you're still the person (laughs) that we met and you're, you have the same kind of inherent value system, but like we've watched it shift and become what it seems like it was meant to be. And it seems like it's probably serving you much better. I'm lucky in that um, because I was a drug addict, it's so ob- your problems are so obvious if you're a drug addict and the root out of addiction, the conversion experience yeah. that's available to a drug addict if you, you know, with, with support, you know, and, and, and willingness is uh, like, in fact, my sort of whole belief system now is founded upon the idea that, that, that you can replicate that system with all in my own case and for other people I hope you can replicate that system with all attachment like the idea of recognizing it as a problem believing it's possible to change it being willing to accept help but that is antithetical to what we're describing in a person trying to achieve personhood and I'm in a sense Lena thinking about framing this for you not only as a creative person but as a somewhat political and outspoken social figure that when you're sort of talking about you know the uh, oppressiveness of a school system that is unable to facilitate let's call it you know genius or extreme creativity or whatever you're comfortable with uh how you know how that uh, how that can be extrapolated into social systems that are de facto oppressive towards certain types of people well you know it's interesting because i did not have an obvious drug addiction, but I am a sober person who's been sober for over a year because I had a not that obvious drug addiction that sort of man. I had a, I had complicated issues with ego and control and willfulness that didn't necessarily. I feel very lucky that they ended up manifesting as a drug problem because it put me in a situation to make changes that I otherwise would never have made. Russell just quietly poured me some water and I loved it. And in a way, having like you know the worst five month drug spiral put me in a position to actually make some changes that needed to happen for a really long time around addiction to work, around addiction to like certain kind of validation and self-expression and a cycle of that, around addiction to relationships, really fiery, intense, aggressive relationships, around addiction to, around codependence, like around all this stuff, around shopping. Like, And when I read your book, I was like, Oh, what I liked, what was so, what made sense to me was you were like, you were like the same mechanism, instead of saying like, you know, drug addicts are just wired differently. They're, they're, they have their own specific set of issues and these are the specific tools that will help them. You were like, these same principles, we can practice them in accordance with sort of our own higher self around whatever issue is making it impossible for us to function in a healthy way in the world. Yeah, that's Did right. I analyze your book correctly? I was so caught up and enjoying having you analyze my book. <laughs> There's no way I could have been specific with my critique because the phenomena itself... Was so thrilling. I it understand. was so thrilling. Because it's a really great book. And then I donated it to, a copy of it to the library at a rehab. I put it in an AA library. I've, I've spread that book around. Thank you very much for no passing that book about. So that in the height of that thing, that sounded when you were saying like the intense relationships, the uh, the misuse of for you was it like a psych meds and anxiety like, yes, medication? Yes, which you could probably read a mile away because I'm not an IV drug person. Although I do like when I've been in the hospital, I've been given IV drugs that are the equivalent to heroin, and it's not not pleasurable. No, no, it's so so calm, so serene. So, you know, a beautiful rug by the smoothest ocean, but 
And you're like, I don't even care that there's like a nurse screaming in my face because like I would love to just like live in this space between this liminal space between life and death forever. But yes, for me, it was like Clonopin. It was, I wish it wasn't so quotidian. I love to be able to be like, hi, I'm Lena and I'm a drug addict. But like, if we really get to the bottom of it, it's like prescription medication that a woman on the Upper West Side gave. Hmm. That's all right though. Elvis. <laughs> totally. Like that was his deal. I wish it had been like, I was addicted to LSD. <laughs> I can't get enough. I can't. No. I will not operate on this bandwidth of consciousness. <laughs> I can't. So is this when you are like, um, in the midst of, uh, you're a young person and it's evident that you are going to, even just sort of looking at you, it's evident that you're going to continue to be sort of influential in ways that are like, uh, have not yet been realized, but like say the height of say girls excitement and awards and stuff like that. Yes. Is that when? That's when it really started. Like before that, I didn't even I mean, I just lived like from one anxiety to another and then it started to be too much for me but saying this is too much didn't appear to be an option especially because everyone around you as you know is going you're getting the thing it's the thing does it feel as good as you think it's going to feel I want what you're getting so please tell me that what I'm trying to get is as good as I think it is and so you're both like having to reinforce for other people yes this is the best thing that's ever happened to me and also try to tell yourself it's the best thing that's ever happened to you and it's so cognitively dissonant and makes you feel so distant from the people that you love and so distant from yourself that like the options are either like I'm moving to Alaska or I'm going to start taking anti-anxiety meds. And I think like, I mean, you've talked about this. Like, I don't think fame is a set of conditions that is healthy. And I don't think that if, I think if you experience unmitigated joy from fame, that there's truly like a wiring problem within you that like is hard. Like it's the same way. Like I'm like, well, that must be like one way we can measure sociopathy is just like, you think being famous is just fun. Yes, it's very like, the, when I think about it, I, it's impossible, isn't it, even to recall what was it we were aspiring to? Because I had a very pure love of e.g. performance, creativity, mm-hmm. like, an, and indeed I did do it above pubs for nothing for ages. Because you, know? you loved doing it and it was just fun to make people laugh and fun to fuck around with your friends. And I loved that. I was like, I love making movies. If people like your movies, you get to make more movies. It's a really simple equation, which is the more people like it, the more you get to do. But then what actually happens is you're like, well, the more people like it, the more parties I go to and the less I get to do what I like. And the more I'm like finding myself in situations where I feel physically, emotionally, and creatively stifled, but I'm being told by people who I'm paying to stay. And you're being kind of objectified and commodified. You're like inadvertently, you are becoming a commodity because that's what systemically is required. It's like this is now a commodity. And if this commodity functions well, you can carry on. If it doesn't function well, you're in a lot of trouble. But you, so in the, at the height of that, you know, with with the work being like highly, extremely credible and uh, publicly validated and adored and, and brilliant, that, that for you, there was a kind of disjunct. I'm interested in particular in what you said about feeling separate from the people that loved you. Well, I think like my fam- my family was extremely supportive of me making my work. Both my parents are artists. My dad's, he really is very excited. I'm here, as I told you, big fan. Um, and I have a younger sibling who's also a very creative person and they wanted me to do what they wanted me to do. But it's sort of like they could see me becoming less and less happy 
But, and I also was getting physically sick because I have like a number of chronic illnesses that were not like that, like traveling red eyes and, you know, drinking, like starving myself and drinking champagne in the morning. Like none of that was like good for my body. And my parents see me becoming less and less happy. My siblings see me becoming like less and less, you know, you start kind of thinking your career, you start feeding the meter of your career at the expense of your relationships because you can't travel and you can't work 18 hour days every day and still and keep and satisfy all the people who are making money off of you and still give your family what it is that they deserve and still give your friends what it is that they deserve. And so suddenly you're like basically saying my life and my career are more important. They require more attention. They are more necessary. Like you start acting like you're a doctor who's like on call for emergencies when you're just making television like that is so crazy. So I think that I started, but like when my family would say, you know, this is, this seems like a problem, I would experience it as like, they're trying to control me. They're jealous. I feel so far away from everybody. Like it's so, like thinking about it now, it's impossible for me to imagine that I was like, you guys, I know grandma's dying, but like, we're going to lose this location this afternoon. Or whatever, like that's nuts. And I am glad I did go when my grandma was dying. I was just was what like, happened to that location? <laughs> it actually, this is crazy. The day that my grandma was dying, our location set on fire, and so I was like, "Good news, guys! The location <laughs> set on fire, so I can stay by grandma's bedside for a couple more hours." Mm. It's an extreme experience. It is, and there's a lot of extreme experiences in life, but this is a very specific one, in that. It's like an experience that a lot of people think they want. And so it, and also it's an experience where you suddenly have this weird thing where you're moving through the world and being recognized by a lot of people you don't recognize. So like that thing, which is also not natural. Cause like usually when someone says hi to you in the street, you know them. Yes. And when you don't, it starts to feel like you're in the twilight zone. I, my first reaction was always that I went to camp. I was always like, oh, I must've gone to camp with her. Like it took me years to realize I did not go to camp with all these people. How many people at this camp? <laughs> it's a huge camp. For Christ's sake. That's more of that kind of objectification, isn't it? Really like, um, well, I've heard that quote, like fame is just a, a bunch of people you don't know having an opinion about you. And now, like when you describe the intensity of uh, what it was like to uh, be uh, in the middle of all, all of that creativity and the incumbent attention and pressure... Like, what is it do you think that led you, and it's a decision that I similarly made, uh, to get involved in sort of political commentary? And uh, is that was that a deliberate thing or did it happen just by inertia? What happened? It sort of was like people were asking, and I also felt at the time, like, it's a little bit more, like, people, more people, because we're living in such extreme political times, which I know everyone thinks. I once read some quote, I think it's Martin Amos, like, like the trademark of every artist is they think they're living on the edge of the apocalypse or something. And like, we all are like, there's been never been a time such as my time. But like, it does seem like people are stepping up to the plate more because it's like less controversial to say like, Donald Trump's crazy or whatever. But like <laughs> before it was sort of like, celebrities don't do that. Like, who do you think you are, Ronald Reagan? Like it was like really kind of crazy. So I was like, I always liked doing things that people told me not to do. So I was like, oh, when I like say I like Obama, everyone freaks out. Interesting. So like, I wish I could be like, I felt called to protect my country, but it was more of like the same part of me that was like, 
I'm going to take my bra off in the school play was like, I guess I will talk about abortion on the radio. And then you're sort of in it and it does make you feel very important. And you are told you're making a difference and you get to meet really interesting people. And then also it does seem to give some kind of meaning to this very confusing experience of fame, which is like, well, this whole thing's kind of meaningless, but maybe if I can like change some policy or do something, it will make the whole, I like kind of had a canned line I used to give that was like, celebrity is kind of stupid, but I can like make it mean something by, you know, talking about things other people won't talk about, which sure, that's totally fine. But I don't think that was, if I look back, I don't think that was really telling the whole story. My own... I don't know. I would love to know your version of this. I felt rootless. It, like what I felt like is like that in a way, like you said, uh, it resonated when you said about the thing of taking off the bra in a school play. Although that wasn't my particular experience. <laughs> I wasn't allowed near the bras. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's not too late, right? Um, <clears throat> maybe for a school play. But I don't think anyone wants me at a school in a bra at this we, in my forties. So people want. But who knows? Pete Doherty was handling a hedgehog today, and it's in the news, so you can have anything you want. Yeah, there's there's room for people to let's start meshing some ideas. Um, like what I remember is doing things that has felt incredibly right and truthful around in my country around politics around sort of, uh, like for me it was speaking out about there's not enough distinction between the political parties no wonder there's a general apathy both political parties represent corporate interests no one cares about the experience of ordinary people so I remember when you started talking about corporate interests and I was very interested because I was like wow that's a whole other hot take that never occurred to me well, I was like, I got really very carried away. And like you said, I got sort of, you know, there was a lot of validation around it. And But this, this is the problem for me. And this is a thing that I'm really hoping to learn from this time. There's a point almost, you know, like with hybrid cars that they can switch between being electricity or gas or whatever. Totally. With me, there's, there's like, I still have a fair portion of ego and vanity in me. I try not to let that govern me, but it's there yeah, waiting course. to be of sort of prompted. So I start to sometimes get involved with things with very, very good intentions, notably like getting involved in politics and trying to, you know, use my celebrity to find meaning yep. and provide a voice to the voiceless and all these kind of things. Yep. But there was a point in, this, in the, and this I think is common to people that have issues with uh, addiction in all its forms, whether that's relationships or shopping or obsession with work, where you like where we no longer recognize when we've, like you were saying with the grandma location fire, you could, you're not able to discern, oh, look, I've gone mad now. Like, and I'm not. So there was a point where I was still doing the same thing. I was still getting the same attention. I was dabble, like, sort of interfering in general elections and sort of supporting candidates, which I, I know you've uh, also done. In my case, it seemed very, very extreme and very. What do I want to say? I don't know. Pointed. I don't know what it was like when you were doing it. Anyway, like, what what I'm saying is, is that the end point of this was I started to feel very rootless and untethered and I kind of had a bit of a mental breakdown which in a sense was a good thing because it was a kind of death a kind of death of and the it's interesting because you were already sober at that time and yeah. so many people think about it as like there's their sober self and then their there's their non-sober self and then their sober self but if you think about it like getting sober from drugs and alcohol is just one step in like kind of facing all of the stuff that you do to keep yourself distracted just from the basic condition of being a living person. Yes. And it sounds like you were like, okay, I'm not taking drugs anymore, but I am going to like literally like, like it. it's hard to really recognize that you're just like, you know, a fallible man when you're like trying to stop corporate entities from taking over the planet. Yes. Yes. And the, uh, you know, the, the, <clears throat> 
in a sense, where where is the distinction between the sort of positive aspects of our nature and the negative aspects of our nature? For me, like I've been working through addiction, you know, like the got the, the, the crack and the heroin thing got out of the way when I was like 27. But after that, like, you know, I'm obsessive kind of around. I'm sad I missed crack. Well, there are some things about crack and the whole world of crack that are upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> One of my best friends wrote an amazing memoir about his crack addiction called Portrait of the Addict as a Young Man. It's beautiful. And whenever he describes it, I'm like, Bill, it sounds like you had kind of a sexy time. Yeah. I, yeah, a lot of um, sort of in uh, my understanding of like uh, from one of my friends about sort of gospel type churches is that the conversion experience is like, oh, I was a bad man. Oh, yeah. it was all sex and drugs. Oh, boo, boo. Tell us more. Tell us more. Yeah. Then I found Christ. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, we know the rest. Yeah, totally. You know, there is, there's no doubt that there is a kind of a superficial glamour and excitement. But when you said that thing about being in the liminal space with the screaming nurse and there you are on the rug, it makes me feel like uh, I, that... In a way, for all of the things we do to fortify and augment the self, there is something in us that knows that peace and happiness lies beyond this construction, this conceptualization of self. Well, it's almost like we do this thing, and tell me if this resonates for you, where I would be like, okay, I know everything that I'm doing to make myself feel good today is like a complete fabrication and that like, I don't really like this boy and I don't really need this skirt and like I'm, you know, and this, I don't really need to go to this party, but I'll deal with it tomorrow. And then there's like a million tomorrows and then you realize you've actually gotten very far from the place where you started and you understand like, I mean, the same way we talk about all bad habits, like I spend too much time on my phone. I'm going to, when I go on vacation, my husband and I are going to turn off our phones, but that's in six months. Mm. It's like we do it with, so many things and I was just punting I was just punting any real form of grappling with my inner life so far down the road and then one day I couldn't anymore because I literally just I mean I feel very it was really scary but like one day I just I literally I got it literally happened this way it was it was like I had been through a lot of shit I wasn't facing it I wasn't facing it I like was in a new relationship I was like I don't care who sees me. We make out in the street. We do whatever we want. And I make the art I want to make. And like, fuck my dad. He's really getting in my way. And then one day I literally got so nauseous. I was like about to give a speech. I had to lie down on like the cold tile floor in the bathroom. And I could not sit up for a month because I was so dizzy and nauseous. And then finally, someone was like, do you think you could be related to how much clonopin you take? And I was like, no, you're insane. I'd probably be way more dizzy and nauseous if I stopped taking this much clonopin. But like that experience of literally being stopped in my tracks physically and having to like go home to my parents' house and try to figure out like, why am I this nauseous? Was like just that hitting the wall that was required to just start resetting things. And then that just kept happening. And like, it doesn't mean everything you were before is garbage and everything you are now is like, like, you know, like ohm or whatever, but it is, a very potent experience to it's like a big it's like an experience I think in some way everyone should have of just like not not being able to function the way that you used to having to learn new tools yeah like that little death I I, I, I agree with you I agree with you 
it's interesting to sort of i feel like i've been through a few deaths and then been a, a lot lucky enough to be alive after them like to be aware enough or at least have sufficient external guidance to recognize oh this thing is over now this is not gonna serve me anymore but i like what you said that it doesn't mean that everything that preceded it was without value and worthless how so would you say then like because it seems from to me that you went from very bright and creative and from what i know a relatively stable childhood environment into being this is how it seems from outside being successful relatively quickly your first brilliant film that you directed your relationship with judd apatow the success of girls like when you talk about the addressing the inner tumult, like, do you feel that this was an ever-present thing or do you think it's an, uh, an aberration that occurs as a result of the kind of trauma that fame induces or do you think that there are other psychic forces at work that uh, predate success? That's a great question. I mean, I don't know about you. I found just being a child to be very challenging. Yeah. I found everything about being alive. I never was a person who was like, I would never have described myself as like a happy-go-lucky person. I was like a very, I dealt with like mental illness from a young age. I have obsessed with compulsive disorder that manifested very early, four or five with counting and checking and hoarding and like every version of it I experienced. And so making things kind of became the only place in which I felt safe. And then, you know, I think that I then had an experience of like, I found the world scary then you step into the world and some things happen that reinforce your experience of like, oh, yes, the world is scary, whether it's like, you know, dealing with any form of violence or, you know, being bullied or whatever. And then you sort of for me, it was like I started to get famous and I was like, oh, maybe this is like this thing that say cushions me from all this other stuff. <laughs> and they were like, oh, no, this is like way worse because like now, like, like literally a million people are going to tell me to kill myself on the Internet. And then like you're like oh, this is like a whole kind of like exquisite pain I never even had contemplated. Yesterday, my younger sibling was like, a few weeks ago, I had to take a lot of hormones in order to deal with the, I was freezing my eggs, which is like, sometimes you got to do it, but I only have one ovary and I had to get the eggs out somehow. But like, you're pumped full of so many hormones. And I texted my younger sibling, whose name is Cyrus. And I said, this is, I guess I said something along the lines of, this is the worst day of my life. I've never felt this bad. There's a dark syrupy pain that's coating everything I look at. I feel murderous. I would do a murder. Anyone who co comes near me now should be afraid. I have to be alone because this is too much for anyone else to rightfully bear. Like your sister, Lena, basically. And then like two days later, I was like, the hormones left my body and I'm fine. <laughs> and, and, and Cyrus was like, I can't believe how many, I was like, they were like, do you know how many times you've told me something was the worst day of your life? And I was like, how many? And they were like, probably like 3,000. <laughs> and then he was like, I've literally never described anything as the worst day of my life. Like, it like I was born that way, which is like, you can't imagine the pain I'm experiencing. This is the worst thing to ever happen to me. Somebody... Somebody help me. <laughs> if you were like telling about, I'm eating one of your grapes. This is, uh, you know, that communicate us, bloody obvious really, but communicate us infers, or at least if, in fact states, create community, create community. And I think part of doing that might mean a sort of an ability to extremely feel, realize and express emotions. I'm also, a, like, 
sometimes I see how people around me are reacting to my moods and I feel like, oh, fucking hell, I'm intense. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, with me, it's sort of go, like 10 minutes later, I'm like, I'm all right now. I ruin parties. And it took me a long time to under, I for a long time, the biggest misunderstanding I had about myself was that I was like an easy person. Yeah. Like I'd be like, I go with the flow. It's like whatever the opposite of going with the flow is, like, like when I was at summer camp, to name it again, I remember like, Stem, resist the flow, damn the flow, reverse the flow. Oh, I remember like telling these camp counselors who were like drinking a beer by a fire at night, being like, my, I just want to let you guys know that like we're only 12 and for our uh, counselors to be drinking, it makes me feel really uncomfortable, especially because one of my parents is a recovered alcoholic. So do what you want with that information. Like that kind of thing. And like literally the camp counselors were like, you suck. Like, <laughs> and I remember telling my dad and he was like, you suck. Just let them drink a beer. Like I can't let anyone do anything. And now I'm better because, but now instead of trying to let people, instead of trying to go with the flow, I remove myself from the flow. Like I, I know the situations not to put myself in anymore because I don't want to be, I don't want to ruin the party. I just don't want to go to the party. Yeah, you mustn't go, Lena. You'll ruin them. They're not you. <laughs> do a... you like parties? No. No. I like it. Like knowing that there's a party on the horizon, it functions in my mind like a dreadful catharsis. I'm like undoing yeah. myself <laughs> now. What am I going to wear? What am I going to say? Imagine what conversations I'm going to have to have. You know, like... <clears throat> But it's, again, it's not because like... Uh, it's not because I think I'm superior to those places. It's that I, I get caught in the traction beams of like uh, uh, glamour, other people's opinions. These things, I'm very, very sensitive to them. I've found like, you know, like this is why for me, the 12 step model works well for me because it explicitly states, you need a spiritual awakening, Russell. You need a change of perspective because for me, I get very, very attached to things. I like you, I'm not a go with the flow type. I have that tattooed in Sanskrit. On my arm. It and says go with the flow? That says go with the flow in Sanskrit. Oh, it's beautiful. In fact, it says there is only the flow. When I was married to dear Katie, we both got this done. And that, like, before we went to India, you know, because I was told when you go to India, um, you got to get with that flow because India will chew you up and spit you out if you try to impose your Western, we're doing it this way. Well, shit. guess what I did? Yeah. I went to India with my mom and then like nine days into our 17 day trip while she was at a market, I called my assistant at the time. I was 26 and I was like, get me on the nearest plane. I have to come home. I like am bleeding out of every hole in my body and like you've got to get me out of here. And then she got me on a flight. I thought it was in... Jaipur, but it was in Jodhpur, so I fully went to the wrong city. Like in like the back of somebody's car that had a hole in it to the ground. And then literally I remember, and I can't tell if I've like revised these two memories. One is that I climbed over a pile of rubble to get to an ATM machine in like these heels. And like if anyone had looked, they just would have been like, that lady sucks. And then got back in the car with all my cash and we were driving to the other airport and I looked out the window and there was like a pit of mud and a cow came fully out of it. Like it wasn't even like the cow was like hanging half in mud. It was like the cow had been fully submerged submerged, and came out and like looked at me. And I was like in a Terry Gilliam movie. Like I was like, this is the craziest thing. And then of course, when I like said anything about that, I like got home and like the next day got interviewed for a Rolling Stone profile. And it was like, I just left India. I hated it there. And then like, <laughs> every, and then, like 
literally for a while, my sibling okay. was dating an Indian girl and like was like, I didn't want to tell her your last name because I was like embarrassed. My last name because I was like embarrassed. And then when she finally did, she was like, oh yeah, we know here that she said like India sucks and she hated it. But I didn't hate it. I just didn't go with the flow. Yeah, India, it wants you to really, you've got to, uh, what do I want to say, surrender to yeah, the, the powerful flow those. of India. Yeah, I don't, I like hate sand. I hate beaches. I hate the sun. I hate friendship. I hate <laughs> human warmth, compassion, uh, mm-hmm. moments of transient joy. None of it. I'll have none of, of it. <laughs> of a golden child. Um. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. Um, so like the, the, for me, the point of the spiritual awakening, which there is that white again, one like 12 steps, I'm really preaching here, but like, uh, because it's a really good system. It's a good model. Isn't I'm only it? on step four, which is really, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to talk publicly about which step you're on, but it's a really hard step. It's okay to do it as long as you don't mention whether or not you go to any particular fellowships. That I don't anonymous. go to any particular anonymous fellowships. I don't, I don't consort with anyone particular. Mm. Everyone there is anonymous. My, I have a sponsor, but I don't know what she's sponsoring me in or what her name is, but I am on step four and it sometimes is really puts you in a mood oh yeah for me like the conversion experience is like there's like the obvious conversion experience of taking drugs to not taking drugs being you know diff more difficult with relationships because we're all going to be i have a codependent relationship with my wife still obviously and i have to just observe when i am making unreasonable demands which is pretty much a daily occurrence the reason i like the 12 steps is because there's the conversion of you know drug addict to not drug addict then there's the continual conversion from a state of mind where i think that the outside world is there to validate me make me feel better serve me like your uh, dog trainer said you know like re- i am there to serve reality reality is not there to serve me when i make the mistake of thinking, I can get something from this situation. I immediately enter into a system of behaviors that leads to me feeling lonely, unpleasant, dirty. But the 12-step model can be used to navigate my way back. As soon as I'm not... What I like about Alina is it's like we have the right, uh, the right seems like an odd phrase, but a human being can be at peace and happy. If you are not at peace and happy, you should consult with your program. What is it you're not doing that you should be doing? What are you doing that you shouldn't be doing? Also, when I first started hearing people talk about this, I hated, I was like, this share sucks. Because people would be like, I'm really happy. My mom's dying. My husband cheated on me. One of my kids is a criminal. And you'd be like, well, clearly this isn't working because your life sounds like it's garbage. But then you realize like, no, what actually you've accessed is the ability to exist in a life that is never going to cede to your demands because it doesn't care about your demands. And that is like ecstatic to be able, because who wants a lot? You don't want to like be living in an elf cottage with like all your perfect friends. You just want to be able to exist in the world as it is and feel like a part of it rather than like somebody who's viewing things from behind an angry pane of glass, <laughs> which sound, which seems like you, like when I walked into your home today, I was like, this seems like the, a person who's really... Like, I looked at you and I mean, I don't know if your viewers at home know, but I did have the opportunity to meet Russell's uh, wife and children. And you were really engaged with your wife and you were looking at your children and your children weren't props and your home was full and there were lots of people having fun and it smelled good. And like, you know, you were like, 
just in it. And that's like the dream. Thank you so much for saying that and for using the word seed, which was a word I was groping for back in my uh, in the India story, which either consciously or otherwise, you provided that word a little bit later. I went for surrender in the end because seed, file not found, but thank you for that. It takes time sometimes. Yeah. Today has been okay, but I have some very challenging word finding days where I literally, the other day I tried to spell stupid and I spelled it S-T-O-O-P-I-D and I was like, it's time to go to sleep. Yeah, let's get some rest. You know, with the the experience of uh, having a domestic life has automatically done for me a lot of things that I tried to do through sort of celebrity or promiscuity or drugs, a sort of a sense of like, how do I calm down? And it seems that like currently at least what has been successful for me is to have people, relationships, children in my life that require of me that I can't live in the the uh, sort of torrent of self-obsessive inner dialogue. Yeah, that's like incredible. And also, and to have a domestic life and really give yourself over to it, because I think a lot of people have like a domestic life that's just, I know I was guilty of this in my long-term relationship at different points, which is like having figureheads of like what you think normal people have, but you're not actually engaging with them. So it's like, we bought a house, we have a dog, we made a quesadilla tonight, but it's like, you're not, you're just not present. I love and that. Yeah, like it's a facsimile, a spectacle. You've like, you've not been, um, this, like, a, you know, uh, Baudrillard, the French philosopher talks yes. about that we are living in a you know, simulacra and simulation, that the, the, osm- the symbiotic relationship between media and r- r- everyday life is now becoming so immersive. The boys we... in American college love to talk about the simulacrum. You're doing a good job of it. And like, boys, like, but like, check this out. <laughs> you're Sit really tight good. and get a, a real dose <laughs> of post-structuralism from an Englishman. I just want you to show them, like, give them some lines that they can use. I don't want Baudrillard being used as a seduction tool. (laughs) French philosophy went through a lot to start being a little bit more sterile and sexless. It's true. It ended up at Derrida, and now we're not dragging it back to Rambo. I host a podcast with my friend Alyssa Bennett, and we do it. We we met in our in a freshman seminar where we learned about the simulacrum and like and we also learned about like what's that um, prison in that they talk about where Foucault. Foucault's like it's a three sixty prison where everyone's looking at you yeah the pan something yeah that, the really. it's like it's like it's a three sixty prison and we you'll never know who's watching you so you'll always you know like f- put, behave and like. Alyssa was like really smart because she'd been like an international model and was coming to college at age 26. And I was literally like, I came to this class because it had fashion in the title. And like, but um, I remember the simulacro like being like, I really get this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, like my dad's done mushrooms. I know about this. Yeah, I know about fabricated realities. My dad's at home tripping off his nuts. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Uh, where did we, why did we get into that? You, we were talking about sort of like if you have a domestic life that you're kind of just keep, just kind oh, yeah, of using as a um, like a placeholder for something else, or like using as a way of mm-hmm. saying, "Look at me, I'm a normal person." Like when aliens come down from space and are like, like whenever there's a movie like Coneheads where the aliens have to pretend to be normal, you know, and they're always like, "I love sports too." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. 
how are you uh, approximating normality these days? These these sort of uh, times that you're describing, this kind of terrible nadir of you and great uh, use of nadir. Thank you uh, with the anxiety medication. This is some time ago. Yeah, it's like been over a year, so I'm really enjoying my anxiety medication free life. For anyone listening at home, don't go off it without a doctor's help. It's not safe. But um. What but, things are in place to protect you now? Well, I have really great... I, I work with a bunch of new people. I kind of reoriented my work life a bit in a way that just felt a little healthier for me. I um, moved. I moved into a new apartment that's like very... I live in between LA and New York. In LA, I have a roommate named Paul who's... He's his own, he's his own podcast. And in LA and in New York, I live in like a very elderly building. Like a lot of like 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 old therapists and stuff live there. Like it's like kind of like people who bought their apartment in like 1975 and then me. And like, then I also spend a lot of time with my parents now. Like I think healthier time than I used to. A lot of time with my sibling. I meditate. I've done TM since I was transcendental meditation, which I know you do too. I've been doing it since I was nine because it's something that my mom's done since her early 20s and my aunts and my grandma and my great grandma. So that's a big part of my life. I'm actually working with our friend Bob Roth to try to bring some like meditation to try to rethink how like how meditation is taught in like um, women's prisons and rehab centers, et cetera. And then and then I also have like I have a I have a program. I have a got my own understanding. I have a lot of really great sober friends. I have like a lot of relationships. I think the interesting thing that happens when you shift your life in any way is a lot of the relationships you thought were essential leave and a lot of relationships you didn't know were important rise and you go like, oh, this person's been here this whole time and I didn't understand how much we were getting out of each other. This other person who I thought was my whole life was actually just kind of like a kind of kind of a more negative force. And so things are really, um, they're not perfect, but they're much more manageable and even pleasurable yes i suppose in an inversion of our dabbling in baudrillard just there that yeah. there's that we you, can host our own french philosophy podcast for the three listeners who at home who that want are it. into this yeah. all relationships are necessarily a projection of some aspect of yourself so if you're like that that um conversion of like letting go of relationships and the and uh, sort of nourishing and spending more time in uh, in relationships that may have been neglected I suppose that's a that's a, demonstrates how like there is real inner change. Early right early on in this uh, chat, you talked about finding divinity in relationship, and I feel that that's a an integral thing to do. That to find a sort of authenticity and purity in, in relationships for myself also, and this would be step eleven in a twelve step program, like uh, through prayer and meditation, having conscious contact with a higher power, God of my. Own understanding. You don't so, love the word God, do you? It's not your fave. I, I have no problem with it because I like the idea that I can reach people that would use God naturally. You know, yeah, but like, then I don't want to exclude people that are like, hey, that sounds a bit antiquated. Yeah. What do it's you It's just dog backwards. Right. This, you know, let's not get bogged down in semantics. Yeah. That's how I kind of feel like I was talking to this girl once and we were just at, like, we we're at a place where people gather together and I said something about this other one we know and I was like she loves God and and the girl like snapped at me and she was like um I use the term goddess the last thing I need is another mean old white man telling me what to do and I was like 
I feel you. Like, like she was kind of like pissed, but I was like, cool. Like, yeah. Like it was, she kind of like snapped it at me and I was like, no, I'm, I'm on your level. Well, I suppose because what's been identified in that exchange is often abstract power, a concept such as that being used to further inculcate existing power dynamics, which is something that you've been vocal about. Is that something that you you envisage yourself continuing to be involved with? Like, say, with like Hillary Clinton, that was something the way you were yeah. right involved. Where, where do you see yourself with politics at the moment? I did enjoy spending so much time campaigning for Hillary Clinton. It was really fun, and I believed in what I was doing. It's not where my head's at right now. Never say never. And like when a candidate who I think is interesting, like asks me to engage, I'll always consider it. But like, I'm kind of interested right now in the way that art and really personal art can give, can sort of change people's minds and also change their lives and make them feel safer. And by having a lot of people who feel more safe and seen, we like, you know, ultimately have a more peaceful society. And so I'm like more interested in that end of things right now and making things than I am in being sort of loud and proud about that stuff. But also I feel like other people, maybe you feel this way too, like other people have really stepped up to the plate. Like lots of people are talking about these things now. Not Nobody really needs me to do it. Not that they quote unquote needed me before, but like you sort of go where you think there's a place for yourself and then other people pick up the slack and you're like, okay, I'll be like over with my cats you're idealistic and there's nothing wrong with that is there nothing wrong with doing what you feel to be right at a particular time i was very struck by an interview i saw prince god rest his soul give once where like like it was prior to the election of obama and the interviewer was rather presumptuously pushing the idea that prince would be well into an african-american president and he's like i don't care right yeah and like he used the phrase i don't have a dog in that fight i don't care and like prince said like i see the world from a spiritual perspective and on this bit i I may now be uh retrospectively re-engineering what prince said to be in line with my own beliefs but he seemed to be saying that what happens within the framework of politics is always going to be limited to a degree because there are so many interests and ties that are about the self-preservation that prevent real change. I didn't like the thing of when you're on, when you're stumping for a politician and someone asks like a perfectly reasonable question, like about maybe the politician's corporate interests or their relationship with someone who's done something they think is bad. And you have to do this like weird dance where you pretend that it never happened or it doesn't matter. And you're kind of being told like, okay, here's how you're going to punt that question down the line. And it's like, what if we all just went like, yeah, it is crazy that Hillary Clinton is married to a man who shamed Monica Lewinsky so that she wasn't able to live her life on this earth. Like, what if we looked at that, but Hillary Clinton was still the best candidate to be president, even though we also had a real problem with the treatment of Monica Lewinsky by somebody who she's still intimately involved with? Would our heads explode? But at the time I had to be like, I don't think that's relevant, sir. And like, I just felt like a crazy liar. Because it is a reappropriation of who you are. And I've had like comparable dalliances in my own country and had to be involved with those, um, like, you know, with that non cliche and that the, the, the dance that you describe. But like, it is particularly galling when uh, speculatively I feel that 
a lot of Trump's electoral appeal was that he was this kind of yeah, so what? Yeah. God, that, like the thing that he was doing, like which that's... is a very addictive attitude. Like sometimes when I fight, particularly with my parents, and they'll say something, I'll be like, "And you're right, and who cares?" And who cares is a really hard one to snap back at because you just can go like, "I care." Like, thank you so much for this. He keeps pouring me water, guys. He's so polite because he's a father and he's changed. <laughs> that's the message. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go out and tell everyone that yeah. Russell's changed because he's a father and a husband now so that they'll all want to date him. That's finally now I can get out there and get <laughs> really a get whole one. different tier of sexual experience that would have been available to me. Yes. I was just the old Lothario Nope, Russell. this is a whole different vibe, which is like, he loves his wife, but he loves me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, hold on a minute. Let me try to see if I can become that cultish leader. Um, I'm going to do that thing with... Uh, we're talking about like getting involved in politics and talking and you about- You were saying like you kind of had to do this thing where you were, I mean, what was the moment for you? Did you have a friend who was like, hey, Russell, this has gone a little far? Like what happened? All of the people that were involved in my career, I had an infrastructure, for me, right? I went from being a drug addict to having like about one year clean where I was like a little bruised baby bird man. Oh, you feel so crazy when you feel like every nerve is exposed. Oh, fragile, cold showers, early mornings, furtive little guy. <laughs> and, like, and then like, um, then I sort of got on a TV show in the UK and sort of became sort of famous and successful. And like that, that transition from not having any money and being a drug addict to fame and then like the accoutrements of fame. And you know what it's like when you come over here and this is your lawyer, And then lawyer, you're like, if I'd PR. gotten famous before, I could have bought so many more drugs. Drugs, the drugs I could have used. Yeah, yeah. And like, And so um, all of the people, they I had a sort of a system around me that was designed for, this is, we would like you to keep making films and being sort of successful, vaguely edgy novelty Brit, if you don't mind. Yeah. And like, you know, part of me then would have very much liked to have done that. But some, so that when I started to become like a, outspoken I kind of re-engaged you know when you talk about how you were at school and you thought like this is bullshit I'm just going to do what I want I'll create what I want where I want where, you know like a res- sort of a resistance to the flow because it's not we're not talking about some organic flow of uh, Gaia we're talking about the flow of man-made structures I sort of re-engaged with who I was as a sort of an anti-establishment 20-year-old but suddenly with this platform and so all of those people whose my relationships with them were predicated on me earning money, like started to back out of the room. You know, they were not able to accommodate that, understandably, really. They were like, it's a, it's a bit much. Bit much all this, mate. But then it all resettled in a way that was probably in some way more interesting to you. Like you ultimately, in the way that it's resettled, you're like probably expressing yourself in a... It would appear to the outsider that you're expressing yourself in like a clearer, healthier way probably than you were before. And it's like a, a more a more pure um, uh, dose of who you are. Yeah, completely. I mean, this is what it feels like. I, I have to try to share. What would, who would we have become were we not exposed to the um, uh, commodification of what we happen to do expressively or creatively? You know, because I wouldn't have organically gone, I want to go over there and make these kind of films. I just got sucked into it because it was exciting and the part of me that likes attention got caught up in it. So now what I'm doing, you know, sort of 
in middle age is sort of watching myself when I suddenly start to think, oh, I should do that. That would be popular. If that, if I were to do that, that would I would get power or prestige or privilege. I try to watch that. I try to prioritize, you know, like the, the 12 step program, I think it has a universal power. I feel if I continue to think your function here is not to look at the world as a resource and take things from it. Your function is how can I be of service? Like in so doing, I overcome that dreadful trap of feeling like I'm just an, an individual in space that's going to die and everyone I know is going to I can't handle that. So I have to use an alternative program because I do have a program. I have a negative program. Yeah. And this one, the 12-step one, subverts that. And you didn't write a book about the 12 steps because it was going to be popular. You wrote it because you felt like it was something that needed to be said and that you felt like you had a way to say it, which is so cool. Well, some, you know, like uh, I think I maybe saw you on an interview or maybe it was in this interview, like a U-shaped hole in the world, like knowing yeah. that there's somewhere that you yeah. can go, something you can do. There's nothing wrong with, I think, being public or prominent or successful or vocal or expressive or any of those things. But as long as, for me personally, as long as I can somehow remain connected and not lose my... Um, 100% and that you don't feel like you're just kind of like like waddling through the world trying different things but that there's some sense of like you have you're on a little it's nice to feel like you're on a little bit of a mission yeah we need purpose what are you going to be doing now then because we've got to whisk you out of here in a moment well you mean what am i going to do this evening yeah this evening and then more generally with your whole life oh yeah totally so this evening i'm going to go back to my house where my um dogs and my cats are and my roommate paul i'm going to take a shower our friend Suzanne's coming over to kick some ideas around with me. I think I'm going to paint a portrait of Paul and Suzanne together because I haven't painted them yet and they have great faces. Then try to answer like half my emails, read a book and go to bed. That and then good with a little bit of like kind of like contemplation time in there. Then generally I'm hosting a podcast on oh, yeah. the same podcasting network that you're on, Luminary. Luminary. We're, we're, yeah, what, so what is that podcast? It's called The C Word. I host it with my friend Alyssa Bennett, who's a historian and a writer. And we do deep dives on the lives of women who've sort of been considered crazy in history. So who's like the media have kind of considered crazy, whether it's Gene Seberg or Mariah Carey or pre-Raphaelite model and muse Lizzie Siddle. And we kind of recontextualize their lives from a place of empathy. And also like Alyssa knows a lot. Well, we both used to love pills and be like really crazy people's people who were like bad girlfriends. So we kind of try to draw on the well of experience we have. And I talk a little about being sort of publicly considered crazy and like paparazzi and da da da. So it's kind of, we're, we're coming at it from like, she's got the historian point of view. I've got the... I once barfed at the Golden Globes point of view, and we can come at it as a team. And we have a lot of fun. Are you interested in myth and archetype and the sort of oppression of the goddess and the inability to incorporate the goddess into the, uh, into the, I don't know, the contemporary? It's funny you ask, because absolutely, yes. Yeah. What you just said is really up my alley. And I'm interested in the way that we like feel the need to kind of create deities and then destroy them and the need to, that need that people feel to see women that they're attracted to suffer and the kind of Madonna whore thing that we're playing out with every female public figure. And then also like how I think that the entire uh, trend of having television exclusively about men who hunt and kill women because every tv show now is basically about like people who are looking for a murderer who like kills women and leaves them in an alley or whatever 
Because, like, really, we just love seeing women have seeing emotional and physical violence enacted on women. So you think yeah, this is the unconscious expression of a sort of an inability to incorporate the feminine? That's really interesting. Because, like, when you think of like Diana, Amy Winehouse, Britney Spears, yourself, like that, when all like- of whom would be amazing. Like, we haven't done any of them yet on the podcast, but like, that would be exactly who we would want to talk about because it's like this sort of. The idea that like these women were were at first adored and then destroyed. And like some women seem to make it out the other side. Some stay alive but die in some way. Wow. Some like, you know, Lizzie Siddle like literally like, you know, drank poison and laid down in a boat. Like it's just so, it's really interesting and painful and helpful for me to sort through all this stuff. And Alyssa is so smart and we just love talking to each other about it. And when I talk to her about it, I forget that we're doing anything that's for public consumption because it's just such a pleasure for me. Um, So that's been a really, and I also like that it gives me an opportunity to say like, to express some anger, which can be healthy to express, like anger at the way that you've been sort of handled because I think we're, there's some sense, especially with women, that we're supposed to, like, you know, get what we get and not get upset. Like, you're supposed to take what's given to you and say thank you a million times. And, like, sometimes you get sick of doing that. And you can still be – you can still be – getting angry doesn't mean you're, like, irrational. No, you're quite right. That's a – that trope exists when – when it's a good way of asserting power condemning by condemning the power that opposes you – as irrational um you the only anger i have at any ex-boyfriends i don't care if anyone cheated on me i don't care if they screamed at me i don't care if they made me look like an idiot at a party but if they treat me like i'm crazy or like i'm too much or like my reactions aren't appropriate it can get really dark Mm, in here i don't like do anything i wouldn't hurt them or the girlfriends yeah you're right no it's just so mentally yeah for me i've not done that hey um you know, uh, you might like this book. I'll get it for you. It's by James Hillman called The Soul's Code, where he talks about the, the realizing your innate qualities. And uh, he, the one thing you would be interested in pertaining to what you we were just talking about was the examples he gave of Judy Garland and Josephine Baker. He said like that Judy Garland forever was condemned to sort of live in the sort of frozen moment of somewhere over the rainbow, this yeah. ultimate ethereal mysterious rootless sort of song and motif and idea of the female he said that she sort of somehow lived that out unable to become realize herself beyond that josephine baker he said on the other hand like was after her career as a dancer uh ended set up schools in france for uh like children to sort of like, yeah. like she found a way of getting back to the earth the earth brigitte bardot opened that insane animal rescue and then like was like pictured like nude with seals or whatever it was she was doing brigitte bardot like or like the way tippy hedron had a um after she was like alfred hitchcock's abused muse tippy then just like went and like lived with a bajillion lions mm-hmm. i love when women move in with lions <laughs> love so now we know that this evening just showers and portraits but the longer term goal could be i would love to like like i'm definitely eyeing the possible like the hope in my life is that i would live in such a way where it was like dogs just came in and out and i never even knew how many dogs like someone was like how many dogs do you have and i'd be like I gotta count mm, yeah we just don't know some of them don't even have names i'm planning a similar thing with children <laughs> <laughs> so good 
Lena, I'm very grateful for this last bit of the conversation. I think it's important for men to have different ways of understanding emergent new uh, aspects of feminism and that it's not a threatening thing, merely the realisation of the whole in a way that's beneficial to all participants. Well, so well said. You're so smart. I'm sure you know, but it's always nice to have that affirmed. You're very, very intelligent and delightful to talk to. And I think for me, the big shift I've had is that feminism for me isn't like a political thing in the same way it used to be. I mean, it's not like I want to get paid the same amount, although like I do, because obviously just everyone wants what is fair for them. But like for me, my version of feminism is much more like a world that would accommodate a lot of different ways of being a woman and like where also women wouldn't kind of hold each other to outdated uh, hegemonic codes that were uncomfortable for everyone to comply with. Yes, this seems like a good goal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me in your peaceful, beautiful podcasting room. Thank you so much for coming. It was such a joy. Yeah, yeah, it's thrilled to meet you. It's really lovely. Cheers, More Lena. soon. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Yes, to freedom and uh, new emergent strands of feminism. <laughs> Stuff we've already said. Yeah, all of it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Lena Dunham just then. You were just listening to it. What do you mean you've forgotten? Where are you now? What happens to you? Remember, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty, Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. Remember to sign up uh, for Luminary, luminary.link forward slash Russell to get three months for free. You've got to do that pretty quick. In the meantime, have a listen to some old ones. Karamo. Douglas Rushkoff, Deep, Wim Hof, amazing. Wendy Mandy, Wendy Mandy. She's incredible. Really good podcast, available to you for nothing. Go to my website, russellbrand.com, if you want to know when I'm doing live shows, because I'm in LA and I'm doing live shows all the time. Come see me live. It's sort of, I did one the other night. It's mental. You won't believe it's really happening, and not in a good way. I'm going to do some more shows, so go to russellbrand.com. There are tickets available for Saturday, 18th of May. And uh, Get Mentors and all, it's available as an audiobook on Kindle or in hardback in the US and Canada. Check out Rebirth on Netflix. Thanks for listening to me on my podcast that's called Under the Skin, which is on Luminary Media. Thank you. <laughs>